Starting a company, that's easy. Selling our company, that's a whole different story. In the big exit show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. And in this episode, we talk to two amazing founders, Sjoel Berde and Thijs Verhul, started their online marketplace for secondhand clothing while still in school. And after six years, they had over 4 million users and sold the company in 2020 to their Lithuanian competitor, Vinted. We will learn how to make an exit while working remote, but also about the dynamics between co-founders while preparing for the exit. And full disclosure, Johan, you are one of the lead investors in United Wardrobe, right? Fully correct. So at the end, I'll do the guesstimation. Mm-hmm. Thijs and Jules, so good to have you with us here today. Thijs, um, your final role at the company was officially head of influencer relations. And according to your LinkedIn page, it says, my goal is to sell the clothes of Beyonce and ASAP Rocky, uh, but the dress of Michelle Obama will also do the job. <laughs> and by the way, if you know Rihanna, please send me a mes- message. <laughs> <laughs> Did any of those people contact you? Now you made a big exit. Yeah, Rihanna contacted me for a date, um, <laughs> but I told her no, and now she's with ASAP Rocky. But yeah, yeah, she was, yeah constantly hitting on my phone but uh, i told her no <laughs> i can't imagine you can do better right yeah <laughs> hey so guys what's what's uh, because we know each other for a long time and um what's the heroic story of united world war sure. uh, now you better tell the <laughs> heroic first yeah who wants to make uh, secondhand fashion uh, worldwide uh, first choice no our goal was the norm for vintage this first choice but we wanted to make secondhand fashion worldwide the norm uh, conquering the whole world from the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, that was our goal, our mission, our statements, our vision. Yeah. Yeah, we started at a university, um, scaled it up uh, through the Netherlands, uh, had a good traction in Belgium and France going as well. And then uh, after four or five years, Vintage um, uh, came into the Dutch market. We started talking, we started to, to meet the guys. It was a good click. Uh, therefore, decided to join them and sell the company to them. And now uh, making a yeah, secondhand fashion big globally. And what's the real story of United Wardrobe? Sure. The, the real story is that um, back in 2014, I had an idea based on my sisters that they potentially would like to change secondhand fashion with other people and that I needed a team that I knew Thijs um, and uh, I knew the other Thijs, uh, the, the technical Thijs, and we just started to, to make a website. We didn't know anything mm-hmm. and uh, we worked uh, our asses off for six years. Uh, in the hope that at some point uh, we would be able to sell the company for a bit of uh, financial freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been a crazy roller coaster where we had to uh, lose a co founder, we had to uh, lay off people. Yeah, it's, it was a roller coaster. And, uh, and at the end, uh, we, we, we kept them believing in our, our dream and our, our success. And it, and it did happen, but uh, it, it was not necessarily always no, a fun ride. It was not always up, right? Uh, no, for sure not. No, it's, uh, and it never is. So, uh, no. Indeed. I and I think what our listeners want to hear is indeed that real story, right? What happened there and what can they learn from it? The beginning. Hey guys, you were, when you started United Wardrobe, you were still in university, right? In Wageningen. Yes. How did you do that? I mean, doing your studies, drinking a few beers and then starting a company. Yeah. If I look back, it's like, what the fuck did we do? <laughs> yeah, it was constantly stressing, uh, getting the st- studies done, getting United Water off the ground. 
For sure, it was a bit easier uh, doing the studies. Uh, but for me, uh, concentrating and learning, it's always been an issue. But I, I still got my bachelor degree, but I did it a year longer. And Shul uh, just looked at the book for two hours and then he went on doing his exams. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's so difficult to combine. Yeah, yeah, but you always uh, manage to find a little two hours to to just uh, do something and work a bit on uh, on United Wardrobe uh, back in the day. And then we had some help from university as well. So I think it was like a seven and a half thousand euro loan that we didn't have to pay back in case we failed. So that that gave a lot of uh, security to us uh, and some room to play. And at the end, we did pay it back because we we did get follow up investment. So mm-hmm. that also felt uh, really good. But yeah, so we, that that's kind of how it got started and. We managed to stumble upon Joop, who uh, became our co-founder, who happened to know Thijs, who really became our, our technical co-founder at the end. And yeah, Thijs uh, at that time worked for low wages. He charged us just 3,000 euros to build this whole platform, or, mm-hmm. or at least the website part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we launched. And uh, from there, we, we just pivoted and kept on going, kept on going. So And vintage clothing is these days very popular. But in 2014, well, it was maybe a bit shady even. These small stores were only very poor people <laughs> came yeah. to be. Well, uh, so people. how did you... <laughs> hip, very, very, very hip. So how did these three guys studying in Wageningen... Uh, thought, well, this is, this is, well, a million dollar idea. Yeah, I, I don't think we at that moment realized that this was going to be a billion dollar business uh, because that, that's what it is if you look at the big players in the industry at the moment. But we just figured that, or I just figured when I saw my sisters and how they changed clothing with each other, that they would be willing to do that with other people as well and that that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of the, the thing. And that's, that's the starting point. And, um, and w- that, what was the problem you were trying to solve? Because there were these other marketplaces yeah. in the Netherlands and internationally, like eBay and all these local eBay players. It wasn't safe. In the Netherlands, it wasn't safe. You had all these Facebook groups. People were constantly whining that they got scammed. On Marktplaats, they got scammed. And also the whole uh, inspirational part of just going to an app and have these thousands of thousands of products to view and get inspiration from to follow people that was not around at that time. Yeah, it's a very common question to ask about a problem that should be solved. But I think it's it's about offering a superior experience for something that that can that is already there can also be a business idea, right? So I think we we just uh, um, build a superior experience around buying and selling secondhand fashion by making it inspirational, by making it safe, uh, by making it cool. Um, so it wasn't necessarily in that sense solving a problem. How did you find your first target audience? Because you knew who your target audience was. Yeah. How did you find them? Going around in the university, just getting people literally on the platform, telling them about it, and then... Uh, and, and, but how did you do it? Did you walk around and yeah. then just started chatting people up? Yeah, but that was not really scalable. So we found these Facebook groups. You had this vintage marketplace, and you had clothing uh, aangeboden gezocht, like buying and selling clothes <laughs> in Amsterdam. And in total, uh, they had like around 50,000 people already using it. So it was like United Wardrobe, but then on Facebook. And we knew we have to migrate these people. So this is what we did. All the clothes that came in... On uh, these Facebook groups, we got those products and shared them in these groups. And me and Shul, like only thing that we were doing was like we opened Google Analytics and then we started sharing these products in these group all the time, like li- literally ten hours a day really? sharing. Yeah, you were uh, just like data data entry basically. Yeah, <laughs> but you you couldn't really write a script for that because Facebook blocked all the scripts for automatically sharing uh, at the point. 
And um, yeah, and it worked so well. Like every time a cool item came in on United Wardrobe, we shared it in these groups. And around three, 400 people were clicking on that, going to register. And then we had all these free users. This is actually what a lot of companies do, right? When they start, they just do this or buy the Facebook group and then they get the administrator rights, right? And then they sh just start, let's say, spamming, but just using that group and not too much, of course, because otherwise the people will yeah, go people away. Leave. People, ba people buy Facebook groups. People buy, companies, startups buy Facebook groups. You just, and you have, you have just an admin and you pay them 1,000, 2,000 euros and you say, give me the admin rights. My mind is blown. Access. <laughs> really, you don't know that? Okay, that's really funny. Yeah. Oh, with a couple hundred, you're already there. A couple hundred. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so, so take us back to the first year. What was the first year like? I was still studying. So the, the first half year we were still studying. The second half year we said, okay, let's let's take a gap year. Let's try to make this a success. Let's see where we end. Get an um, office. Yeah, we got an office uh, anti-crack. So uh, very, very cheap. It was a really good decision. Then we came together. We were sitting on our own office. It really felt cool. And uh, yeah. Um, we were neighbors back then. Yeah, we were neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, it was super <laughs> sick in the old uh, bank building. Yeah. It had this hatch and you can pull out the hatch and you can jump like two meters down in the sand. It was crazy. Yeah. Rats everywhere. We got broken in uh, two times. They stole our cheese from uh, our refrigerator, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, and the, and the company that rented the place to us, they were too cheap to like pay for the heating, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. they we had to have like electric heating in the, yeah. in the building. We maintained that vibe for like three or four years. So and after that, crucial. we got another one. And we, we had the old postal office in Utrecht, city center of Utrecht. We rented for 500 euros. Every uh, Friday, biggest parties there. Yeah, uh, that's where I met you guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're, yeah. Johan, you always talk about the hacker, the hipster, and the hustler, right? Are these the stereotypes? This, these are the stereotypes. And even <laughs> Thijs made a song on yeah. it, which is really good. You can listen to it on Spotify. Yeah, we'll, put, we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, which is about the hippie hacker hustler song. And yeah, you yeah. describe it really well. For people who don't know, can you explain what it is? The hipster is the product guy, which loves and breathes the product, typically shoe. Then you have the hustler, who really sells the product, either markets the product, but it's really going out and pushing the product out there, which is really Thijs. And then you have the hacker, which is the other Thijs, which is not here, unfortunately, and he's building the product. He's really the tech guy or girl in the team. Yeah. Logical that he isn't here. He's building products. He's building yeah. products. <laughs> and, he, and he has a baby. Yeah. Hey, and as a first-time founders, guys, because you you started the company, you're really a first-time yeah. founder. That's, that's super sick. How how did you learn, especially in those early days, right? How did you learn those skills what you need to set up a company, right? And to and to indeed arrange an office, deal with founders, deal with investors, the angel investors, deal with Everything you run into, how did, how did you? Yeah, just you doing. Learn? You just learn by trial and error all the time. You make stupid ass mistakes and then you learn from that and then uh, move on to the next thing super quick and make quick decisions. Do we, we always were super quick in making decisions and it was like, bang, okay, we're going to do this. Okay, it fails. Okay, next on. What are you going to do next? And yeah, learning is by trial and error. That's the best lesson learned because you already have in your head i'm not going to do this because it's stupid i already know what's going to happen i think you, uh, you, have, you had another approach right uh not necessarily so there there is a problem and uh, it needs a solution and you just analyze what your options are you pick the one you believe in most and and you go and um that's what you do at any moment i would say when you start a new startup or now when we're in investing in startups uh, 
yeah, you just analyze, think a bit and make a decision and, and go. And then if it doesn't turn out to be right, then you were wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, I think what Thais is saying, it's, it's very true. Like you just, yeah, you, you, you need to just decide. Um, that's the most important thing. And then stand behind your decision and try to make it the best. I think uh, you're more the thinking guy and anal analyzing and then acting on the is more the doing guy, right? And yeah. that's, that's always what I like a lot in working yeah. with you guys because I think the brain and thinking and doing, I think that's a very good combination, right? What founders have yeah. should have in their team. Founders need to be complementary. So Indeed. you don't need to start a company with three people with the same skills because you always need other skills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if I'm too slow in my decision-making, Thijs would uh, always know this and say, oh, come on, make a fucking decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were some of the first people you hired and how did you find them? Yeah, Rem Smeers was uh, the first guy. Uh, we found him via the friend of Thijs' uh, Slijkhuis. And this guy, he came in his first day. <laughs> Literally yesterday we talked about it. Uh, the first day we had this major issue with the co-founder, Joop. We had to get him out and make a deal with him. And we started on nine o'clock with meeting with lawyers. And it was his first working day. And he came <laughs> in like, hey, guys, what should I do? And we're like, uh, just uh, work on the homepage or something. And then at six, we came in and he was still there. And I was like, mm, I did some optimizations. Uh, how are you going? And she was like sitting there with his hands in his hair. Like, I don't know if we can move on with this company. Maybe we just have to drop everything. I don't know anymore. <laughs> and we were in total panic mode. He was sitting there. He just finished his bachelor degree. He didn't do his master degree because of us. And he was sitting there like, what the fuck did I make? What the fuck did I sign yeah. up for? <laughs> and now he's working for Vinted. Yeah, he's yeah. still with us. Uh, working with us right? every day. Uh, great guy guy and now at Vinted very happy uh, to be there yeah oh wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> what were some hires that that weren't successful yeah of course you uh, you've always have bad hires and you also uh, learn from that and it's not that they were bad people they were just not or they didn't fit our culture or we didn't have the connection eventually and now how do you find out because especially when you're a first-time founder you don't have that much experience in hiring people knowing which ones will work and which ones won't. as soon as you start doubting on people i think uh, i'm not really the hr person but if you start doubting on people some it's already too late <laughs> but yeah you can also like if you have somebody and you have a company and somebody's there and you already had the conversations and between the two of you who was the bringer of bad news i was better in bringing bad news than shul because shul was a way more sensitive guy but we always with the big bad news we always did it together yeah we did um, and in general i'm quite optimistic and positive so i can neglect bad things uh, for a while so Thais would therefore be more a bad news bringer or be more realistic sometimes in, in things but when it had to be brought I, I would take the ownership and tell people yeah it's the only thing you can do at such moment right uh, just be clear and honest about the fact that you failed and what guys especially after uh, when your co-founder left right and Thais joined fully on board and you had the tech uh, solved in an office you were hiring the first people yeah. etc what was what were those days the biggest challenge that you were facing oh that's a great question development all the time launching new features uh, new payments shizzle bidding options or applications with an android app and an ios app uh, making uploading pictures uh, make it more easy to buy and sell clothes our servers went down like all the time we're working with these big influencers and then they posted something and we paid like a shitload of money for it and then bop, the servers went down for like hours and we we're crying in our beds <laughs> and refreshing all the time and yeah <laughs> and then uh, Thijs uh, Slijkhuis together with his team uh, Rem and the other guys built sick backend solutions for it and 
ja, constantly uh, scaling, finding new marketing channels, finding the right people uh, for the tech team, for the marketing team, for the support team. But actually, I think growth came quite naturally at that time. Like mm-hmm. we we had good ideas on how we wanted to improve the product. But we, it didn't we had, really came naturally. We had to take some marketing steps to get it going. But when the fire was going, it came naturally. Yeah, I think looking backwards, uh, growth at that moment felt quite naturally because what we did is every month we would invest the revenue of the previous month back into marketing. So if we did 10K revenue, Next month, that was our budget. And then we did 12K uh, revenue. Then next mm-hmm. month, that would be the budget. And then 14, 15, and then endless. So, and then that was working. Like, Thijs was uh, putting away that money uh, on, on Facebook or on the influencer marketing and, and some other channels. Uh, I was focusing on product and all the other things that, that had to be done next to uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it worked. I would say maybe a, one of the bigger challenges at that moment was also around operations and um, how to manage CS and how to involve them well and give them a piece of ownership. Mm-hmm. Because that was the moment that those things started to become relevant. Because before that, it was just like a, a five-man uh, company um, and where everybody had a very clear role. Mm. I think to me, that was becoming one of the, the biggest challenges at that moment. So, The growth phase. You were bootstraps. Until that point, I think. When were you? Mm, no, we had our yeah. angel investment indeed to uh, to get this going. Yeah. yeah, but we were growing very efficiently at that moment, so we didn't necessarily need the investment of P Capital at that time. We really wanted it to get the extra knowledge and to uh, be able to go outside of the Dutch borders. Yeah, because the question that I would like to ask was: When did you decide to look for serious capital? It was always Shul. Shul was like, hey, we should get an, uh, another investment. I think it's possible right now. And I was like, yeah, okay, uh, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Shul already was way more into investment, venture capital, in this whole world. And how did you learn about that, Shul? Uh, just the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, a, there's a lot of information out there. Even though uh, I would recommend myself, if I would be in that shoes again, to not look too much at the internet, but find some people who have been through this phase mm. and talk to those instead of uh, going through the internet because yeah, there are more learnings to be to be gathered there, I would say. What were the sources that you were at that time reading or what you can recommend? I wouldn't actually know by head. Like I, I just had like uh, 10 or 20 articles which I really liked, mm-hmm. which I really tried to understand, which were from guys from Excel and from other big VC firms yeah. and, and how they looked at marketplaces and, and what the most important metrics were and all those things. So And how did you handle that VC trajectory, right, to raise funding? So you convinced Thijs, which was, if I understand Thijs, right, pretty easy, right? We're going to get free money. How, okay. How did you handle it? Because I have a very funny story <laughs> to share when we first met, but that's a little yeah. bit later. <laughs> <laughs> Unmanageable team. <laughs> Yeah, I just create a deck, uh, send it out to uh, as much as people possible, and I hope that uh, some would reply. Uh, and how, how hit the press, and get, get media attention. Yeah, hit the press yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. How many um, how many people did you, did you send the deck to? I, I would say uh, roughly twenty. Twenty. Uh, and just by calls, emailing them. Yeah, so I would look look up which are like comparable startups, which which I would uh, like. Uh, who invested in them and invest, oh, yeah. contact those. Um, One of those being P Capital. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think P Capital together with uh, that VC firm from Berlin, what's it called again? Point nine. Yeah, point nine were uh, the ones that I uh, liked the most because I read the most about them and they yeah, seemed uh, expert in the topic that we were working on, which was growing a marketplace. 
And how many did reply? Because you sent them to 20? How many replies yeah, did you get? We, we got good replies and we would call after them to make sure that they received it. Probably Thijs uh, picked up the phone, right? Yeah. Uh, indeed, <laughs> indeed. I was sitting there with Thijs and said, I would write out a script and Thijs would call, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> I feel a bit ashamed about it. But and, 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 probably Thai, and probably Thijs had the script and he completely ignored yeah. the script, right? <laughs> <laughs> Happened yeah, a lot indeed. At the time, I, I really didn't even know how valuation works. Like no, literally, of course. of course I know like a percentage of a company is this word, but like how to get to a valuation, that you have certain calculations for valuation, that GMV is such an important factor in uh, this whole thing. We didn't know what GMV was, no. to be honest. We just no. looked at revenue. No. And, and that's also maybe one of the reasons why we might have undervalued ourselves a couple of times. Mm, yeah. yeah. Now, people often look at VCs as like walking ATM machines. Like you <laughs> said, free money. Yeah. <laughs> um, what were some of the other benefits you were looking for in, in, a, in a venture partner? Um, yeah, well, we, we didn't know much about many things. In the end, the M&A uh, process, merger and acquisition. Yeah, uh, but we didn't care when we got the... Uh, Got to, yeah, uh, to no, if, if you look back, but at that point, if you look back, it's like really a VC can also really be your partner in merger and acquisition. That what we had at the end uh, when we sold the company. Uh, yeah, I would say we got most value out of uh, the collaboration with uh, with the M and I think in growing the company, I honestly uh, would have uh, preferred looking backwards a more hands off investor instead mm -hmm. of a hands in investor. It's uh, yeah, you need to keep on sticking to your own plan because then you feel your own plan uh, way more mm -hmm. and you're also way more resistant to to, to failure and, and changes when, when the plan is not working out. Well, if you have really hands-in investors, it can also be that you start to follow their plan too much and, mm -hmm. and that they uh, get too much input in your company. And, and that's actually uh, having a negative impact, I think, on the, on the growth of a young startup. Yeah, so you as a founder should always take your own plan, right? And and uh, you have advisors and yep. VCs yep. and people around you, but you should always yeah, follow your own um, gut feeling and always. Uh, for sure. When you're young and you have like the investors, you just like they're oh, the investor people, they're almost gods having yeah. money and you're super scared. Uh, like you don't have any money. You live in the student room and like, okay, investors, uh, what should we do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah. you know, oh, they are, have all the knowledge because they invested, but Especially every company is different. You yeah. Know? And as a young person, as a young startup founder, uh, also me and Shul, we like, okay, the investors and, uh, okay, uh, well, what is the right thing to do? But you always have to do your own thing, but you also learn that from knowledge and just doing a lot. And right now, if I would start a new company or yeah, investing in other companies, I would way more think of it is like okay i really have this role and people really look up to you it is important to realize that as an investor and as a new founder that if i now found a new company and i got some investments on board i'm just going to tell them hey guys this is the plan i'm going to execute it just give me some money and i'll triple it and let's go but i'm not going to listen too much if they say hey guys maybe this maybe that of course it's good to get feedback but I think one of the, the big mistakes, uh, the errors we made, it's always in hindsight, as we really thought out all the feedback, we took it way too seriously, I think. Yeah. What's, yeah. Your, what's your take on it? Because you were on the other side of the table, Johan. Can VCs be too involved? Yeah, of course, of course. And I think it's, that's for, therefore I fully agree with you both, is that VCs are helping the company, but it's indeed it's their perspective, right? And they see 
this company, but they are not there every day, right? They're not running the company and you are running the company. So I think always as founder, you should always take your own path and listen indeed to the different advisors and angels and VCs you have on board, but really decide on your own path. I think that's really important. Yeah. And, and, and VCs also as peak is, can be really involved and really hands-on. And I think for founders, it's also very good to say, right, right this is our own plan, right? like you also said a few times, yeah. and take your own path. And I think that's key. Yeah. And especially, I think that's a learning what a lot of first-time founders experience, right? I think, as you mentioned, right now, you're a second-time founder. You've been on that path before. So now you know, you know, let's say, this trick, right? It's for first-time founders, you see it a lot. Yeah. By the way, the funny story, which I wanted to share on Thais, uh, <laughs> which is really funny, and I think a big inspiration for founders raising money. We met at the first uh, meeting at BM to them, and I had a meeting with these two guys, and it was Thais's birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were having dinner with, your, I think, your parents at that yeah. time. But Thijs was, and he can be really bullish. He can be really high energy, <laughs> but which I like a lot because, as you know, I'm also very high energy. But he can also, as I can do, also be a little bit irritating. So at that, <laughs> at that time, I think after 20 minutes, I don't know, probably I said, Thijs, yes. Do you want to get investment? Yes. I think you should take a walk because if we continue to talk like we're having right now, <laughs> you will not get investment because you really irritate me currently. So let's, I, I think I said to take a walk around the building or so, what I don't know. So we yeah. had a short break in the ah. meeting or whatever, right? We, we got some coffee, uh, some went co to the bathroom. Went to the bathroom, etc. <laughs> but it's like when investor, when you're having this meeting with investors, it's like almost <laughs> somebody's talking about your partner, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you know? Yeah. And they say, hey, your business is doing this, but uh, are you doing this and this? And he's literally saying, okay, Okay, uh, your uh, boyfriend or your girlfriend is just ugly, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it feels like this because it's like your baby girl. You you build this whole company, and then somebody's gonna crack it down, and you got upset. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, an he, ego and, thing. and you felt, of course, uh, offended, of course, which I can understand. Yeah, but I think the big, the big. So I laughed a lot about it because this is a great story because you came back at that time mm -hmm. after, and you completely turned around. So you fully got that feedback, and fully also. Understand, understood it and acted on it, right? And that's yeah. the moment personally when I felt, because as you know, I act a lot of based on gut feeling. I felt, okay, these guys, they are up to something great, right? Because they can, they feel their company is their girlfriend, but indeed, if something happens, they can also change, right? They change their perspective and act on yeah. it. And that's felt to me really, really One promising. of the most important things as an entrepreneur, now the lessons are coming. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, you have to bury your ego because your ego is not going to help you anywhere. Is yeah. this also in your book, Thijs? <laughs> <laughs> Lesson, no, There's no. a book coming out. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> Takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Pre-order it now. <laughs> Did your relationship change? Because your roles change over time. You were the CEO. You changed in all different roles in the company, basically. Yeah, uh, even went to France for, yeah. for, for, for a while, I think. Four months. How did your relationship between the three of you change? It really went natural, like this whole thing of who's the CEO uh, and who's not uh, was like, okay, for me, it was already clear that Shul was the CEO. He was like the vision type of guy. And I was like about daily execution. So that my role was more COO-ish, but not really. Yeah. And also doing marketing, of course, and managing the office. <laughs> but it changed because like I met Shul as a student and we were not really 
like we were just like students talking. We we're not really friends, but then we just became best friends because we were sitting in this office all the time, doing uh, seeing each other more than our girlfriends or our parents all the time. And then you became my big brother, man. <laughs> my little uh, sister <laughs> and, and, and I think and I think the, the relation between the, I remember which is also a very funny story I was in Paris at one time and I was sleeping and my phone rang a few times and Thijs called me at that time I was just on a holiday weekend to Paris and then uh, Thijs called me and they said yeah Johan I will be in five minutes on BNR News Radio and I want to ask everybody for an investment for our company do you think it's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> and I said no Thijs don't do it <laughs> <laughs> I think, Jules, you have way more memories, you know, in, in Thijs and, yeah. and also the other way around. But I think that's great if, if you have that. And that, that's what I like really <laughs> in these guys is there are three completely different personalities, but you are really open and also direct to each other always. And, and, and you... I think you fully respect each other also, right? Because also in the board yeah. meetings that we had and discussion that we had and the great times, but also the bad times, right? And the laying off people, etc. You fully complement and respect each other. And that's what I like a lot in founding teams, right? That's because you see, especially when it goes down and it gets rough, then there's a lot of tension and argues, et cetera. And I never had that experience with you guys. So, uh, no. Yeah, I think we've known each other for a really long time now. I think you're all very sincere. Like that, you can be an asshole, but you're very sincere. <laughs> being sincere an being an asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that helps. That helps as well. Um, what do you consider your biggest challenges in this growth phase? Finding uh, cheap influencers to work with. Not, not cheap, but like efficient, well-working influencers. Getting the whole Facebook, Instagram marketing thing going and scaling it up. And every time like we, we spent like 25k a month and then we, we screwed up the budget to uh, like 30k. And eventually it became less efficient. And like, oh, what we're going to do? And we went back and forth all the time with budgets. Yeah, because it was a real marketing machine, right? Yeah. You had to get the big thing with platforms. You had to get new users on. Yeah. Yeah, and we and 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 United Wardrobe as Dotes indeed was was very dependent, of course, on influencers, right? Yep. Which worked really great in the in the beginning, but at a certain moment when influencers became more, let's say, mainstream, yeah, and more also, expensive, maybe and more expensive. Also, we 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 of course we had to find other channels, right? Yeah, indeed, exactly. And I think that's really where where the the biggest challenge was. Like we we've been successful in the beginning with these Facebook groups and spamming and scamming, or I would say scamming, there, spamming there. <laughs> um, then we uh, went to to Facebook. Clicks. Then we went to Facebook app installs. Then we went to influencer marketing, and that's also the moment where we didn't find the next channel anymore to keep this continuous inflow of new buyers and new listers going. So we had a healthy retention. Uh, we had a strong organic inflow, and therefore we were still uh, having a good growth rate. But we didn't have to times three, times four yearly anymore. And that that was the biggest challenge. On like you know you're, you're growing as a company, so there are, there are many things and many fires everywhere. But you also need to continuously search for new channels, or at least we had to. Like some companies have uh, channels which have way uh, bigger reach and way bigger maximums, but our channels like Facebook and uh, influencer were quite limited, and therefore we had to search continuously. And that's also where we missed the step, and therefore um, yeah are not the one that's now the unicorn because we sold to Vinted. Um, otherwise, maybe we could have bought them, you know, in 2016. Mm. They were not doing that well. And we were actually growing very fast at that moment. And if we managed to keep that tra trajectory going, 
who knows? But And you mentioned already, Shul, you should follow your own path more, right? In that respect, looking back. What are other things, you know, looking back, especially from those days, what would you do differently? Spend all the marketing in the Dutch and uh, Flemish markets. So not, <laughs> Instead so of, all, of most all startups are like, like yeah, we're going to raise money to conquer the world because we have a product and it works in the Netherlands and just give us a million euro and then we're going to scale it in Europe. Like with a million euro in Europe, you're going to be nowhere. If, if you have the Flemish part of Belgium with a million euros, you can thank God for that. But it's just like really going yeah. because the Dutch market for us could be 30 or 40 times bigger than where we were at that moment. We just stared our eyes blind at international expansion, I think. So you would focus more indeed on, yeah. your, on your home market and get a bigger yeah. share of wallet from, was, the, from the consumers there. Yeah, but it was logical because if we could get France or Germany going, we could get another round of 5 million and then we could yeah. get maybe Austria yeah, going. But no, but that, is, that is the biggest mistake that we made is that we didn't understand if we get this company, what does it do to our market cap? Mm-hmm. And how much is then realistic to invest in a in a market? Like we went with one million to France. Mm-hmm. It's it's a potential of one billion. That market is a potential of one billion euro. Mm-hmm. You can invest a hundred million and you still make 900 million profit. And we came with, with one million and thought we were going to <laughs> going to get it. We we didn't get anywhere, but we were lost before we even went there, mm. to be honest. Yeah. And we should have spend that one million that we got from Peak Indeed in the Netherlands or maybe Flemish part of Belgium mm-hmm. and build our story and build our proof that we, that we can build something scalable and then raise proper money to go to France. I think that's uh, like, it was a Waterloo even before we went. Mm-hmm. I think so, France. Like it doesn't, didn't matter how well we executed it. Mm-hmm. I also wonder, Johan, do you see this the same? Like you, you were there when we mm-hmm. sent off to, uh, to France with one million. Yeah. Did, did you think like, okay, these guys are going to make One million into one billion? Was it some sort of hope? Yeah, did you think like- yeah. I thought we could make that, of course. Yeah, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, F- yeah, fully. Indeed, hindsight looking, we should have done it. I fully agree with you. But of course, we as investors, right, we look at the valuation of the company and the valuation of the company explodes when there's more international proof, right? Yeah. And that's indeed a, a next proof round to that get an extra. That was the reasoning behind That was the reasoning behind it. it. But in hindsight looking, right, we I think we flooded away a lot of money in these markets without actual proof, right? Didn't you expect like with one million that it would never be enough to build a proper proof story of for a no, market No, I, I would side? expect, yeah, but then of course, and that's a job of us as VCs, right? If we see some proof and more proof, then you put in a little bit extra money and you get other VCs in, etc. No. That's, what, that's what's happening then, right? But indeed, as we didn't get enough proof at that time, we, of course, we had to change our plans at that time. Yeah, but but then you also are out of kruid, as they say in Dutch, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. To, to shoot again because yeah. you, you shot everything into this uh, one market front. Indeed, yeah. So I think then you get into quite a tough situation, uh, which, which happened w- with us. So I think I think we should just not not have ever put so much money on this one bet. Yeah, yeah. Looking looking backwards, yes, I I agree with you. But indeed, at that time, right when we were when you were running the company, and we we thought this was possible, right, to get in this market. And also, we saw, of course, at that time, right, Kleidungkreisel uh, in in uh, Germany. Yeah. We saw Vinted coming up. They weren't at that time, of course, active in that market. But we we saw potential there, right? Yeah. And I think we believed also that our story, and especially our story to users, were at that time better than Vinted so that we could conquer the world. And the whole customer lifetime value of French users, we just could not foresee that no. they that was so much more lower than the whole Dutch user. Yeah, yeah but the lifetime value comes with uh, market penetration. And if you never yeah, reach course. a certain critical mass in a but country... We never really didn't know value. that at that time. No, no, no. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. no but 
We were just like, oh, we have all these French users and a user in the Netherlands is like for us like 15 euros. So I'm going to buy these users for like 10 cents and we'll make immediately 15 euros. It's great. Let's go. And then uh, all of a sudden like, oh, but there's also a competitor that's even cheaper and they also already all use this. So they just install our app, upload some products and they're back to Vinted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was like yeah. basically like that. But I, th- but I think the learning for me is, uh, Shul, to ask your, so, sorry, to rephrase your question. I think looking backwards and it's good to share is, is indeed the dependency we had at that time on influencer and the fact that that effect faded out right and that limited the growth and indeed the unit economics of the company at that time and we also we as investors right because we're also on the table we were not able to find those new scaling profitable marketing channels i think that looking in hindsight i think that should have forced us to other discussions at that time the exit yeah, when was the first time you started discussing the possibility of an exit? The first day of launching, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, it's like this. the exit thing is like the whole romance in the startup world. You know, you, you, you start being inspired by the big players, by the Facebook. And of course, Facebook didn't exit. But you hear like, oh, Thijs Bezorg is worth like this market cap. And you're like, wow, it's amazing. It was just a guy that has this idea. And you start this company and you really think, okay, I'm going to put a website live. And then organically, it will reach to the sky in some point. And yeah, it's not it's not working like that. And then you sell it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then you sell it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the dream. But it's this romance that gives you hope and gets you going. Of course, if you know what it really is to found a company, you would never found a company. But then you I still would... have to do it right and still have to sell it. But when was the first time? I don't recall. When was the first time that you guys decided to exit the company? Yeah, no, we, we, got... we didn't really decide, okay, today we're going to sell the company. It was just like a, a natural process of a, a lot of other companies that were like us, like Chick-fil was bought by Vinted before our, uh, we exit. And there were a lot of consolidation in the market, a lot of players merging with each other. Yeah, well, consolidation was about to happen. At least that, that's what we felt. So yeah. uh, we, we were growing uh, steadily, as I said, through, through the loyalty of our users and organic inflow. Um, but we also saw that some of the players in, in our market, like Vinted, um, and, and also new entrants like, like Zalando and, and, and H&M was, was entering the market with way bigger uh, wallets than, than we had at that moment. So, so we either had to like go and, and join this, uh, this battle of fast raising and, and fast growth and blitz scaling and making sure you get network effects faster than, uh, than your competitors. And, or we had to join one company, being an H&M or Zalando or, or Vinted themselves, and join forces and, and together make secondhand fashion big globally. So that was like the, the decision to be made. And we actually ran both trajectories at the same time. So we, we, we started um, gathering interest from the market, see what we could raise. And at the same time, yeah, got a partner to help us with a potential exit. Yeah, and then that's how it went. And at the end, we got several uh, offers of, of which we accepted the one we felt best about and which was financially also good. <laughs> and then we made a deal and we were like literally on the day of doing the last check, the last... Uh, check in the box. And it was like, sorry guys, we have to pause this whole process uh, just for a couple of days uh, because this corona thing is happening. There's something with COVID, uh, right? COVID. Oh. And then uh, France was shutting down and then we almost had the deal and then stoof and I was like, sure, oh, we're going to never get at this point again. What should we do? And then we just started building again from bottom up, getting ourselves out of this depressed mode and just hustle back again. And eventually, uh, 
uh, Vinted uh, just came back because we were sick as growing uh, in the whole COVID period. But it was like, oh, it was such a nightmare process and it took so long. Yeah, because we started at roughly 12 months before that moment. And then at the end, the closure was six months later. So 18 month process. And it's such an emotionally roller coaster, right? Yeah, because startups are kind of zero or one, right? It's a, it's either you sell or your competitor outskills you at some point and then they become the norm and they get the network effects and then you're not that valuable uh, anymore. And and Vinted did have the big pockets uh, and was on television. So, of course, I'm quite rational. So I I, I always uh, kept believing in uh, it was going to happen. But Thijs, he, he was at some point like, yeah, at every birthday, people uh, tell you like, hey, as um have you seen the, this new competitor? It's called Vinted there on television. <laughs> yeah, back in the days, we were like the guys of United Wardrobe and we're cool and successful. And we're like, ah, how's your company going? It's going so well. I see all these influencers posting about, you know, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, um, I see this Vinted, Vinted on the television. Do you know this company? And in my mind, it's like, of course, what the fuck? I know this company. <laughs> oh yeah, we know them. And yeah, it's a competitor. And oh yeah, oh. It was nightmare, and every time I went to my parents, they're like, "Hey, Thijs, uh, we saw this Vinted again on the television." Every time, and I had to explain to them, "Oh, it's terrible." Yeah. But, but but you know, right? You know these processes are going to take long. I, you know, it's not going to be an easy ride. So we had quite clear division. Like Thijs, he kept on focusing on the Dutch market, and he kept on focusing on growing there, and we kept on growing, uh, even though uh, our competitor was. Uh, quite aggressively spending on television while well, I was taking care of the process and uh, together with Max, our finance guy. Max Hofland, shout yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, great guy. Shout out to Max. Um, and, and, and Thijs S was also fully uh, fully focused on, on just the technology and, and uh, Maud, our CEO, was, was kind of doing both because she, she can do everything. Um, so uh, we kept focusing on the business as well because you shouldn't be like hoping on this thing to happen because then it won't happen. <laughs> they, they need to want you, right? You need to be the candy. And um, at the end, it worked out well. Hey, well what do you think, uh, looking backwards, what was attractive for Vinted to buy? Loyalty of our user base, mainly, I would say. Like Dutch market. E- even with Vinted aggressively spending, and we, we did get their numbers and uh, they, they were growing, but they were stretching out the market. Like we, we didn't realize uh, how big, the secondhand fashion market actually yeah. actually is. We yeah. we actually only had uh, roughly twenty percent, let's say, of it um, of the sixteen to twenty four year olds, and those also happily sticked with us because they they liked our product, they liked the experience. And that was the fun part, you know, when they started on television, we were like, okay, shit, they're cheaper, they're bigger, they have these sick ass big pockets. What the fuck? They're gonna crush us. That was like the mood in the first weeks of those uh, television campaigns. That was your mood, Thijs. <laughs> <laughs> no, everybody felt that in the beginning. Everybody had that feeling in the back of his, uh, at the back of his mind. No of way. course, all employees, everybody felt that a bit to a certain level. But then they started doing these ads. And eventually nothing happened. And a lot of more people Googled for secondhand fashion, started using Vinted, then switched over to United Wardrobe because we already had the liquidity. So in the end, it was super great that they started this (laughs) aggressive television (laughs) ad campaign. And it's super funny that it went that way because you never could figure out that they would stretch out this whole market and this whole new segment of people who buy and sell fashion got activated in the Netherlands. 
So your perception was at that time, Thijs, we're going down, right? With the Vinted ads and oh, your yeah. friends and family saying, Thijs, have you seen Vinted? And your, what was your perception at that moment, uh, Shul? Because uh, indeed a big, at that time also, unicorn competitor was coming indeed uh, to, to, to your home market. What was your rationale? How did you respond to it, Shul? Uh, well, I, I think we were, we were quite well prepared. As in the, the, the product was pretty much... Uh, I, th I think better than theirs because we had we had the supply at that moment. Um, it was all working well. We had integrated shipping, we had integrated payments. So, so I wasn't that scared in the, in that sense. Um, I think our experience was more fashionable, and and therefore we were able to offer a better experience for our core user base. Um, and yeah, I just looked at the data as well and just didn't see a massive churn. So it seemed like okay as long as. We're able to keep our users in. We're still able to acquire new users. Then we're going to be able to be fine. And yes, growth will become more expensive and more tough, but it doesn't mean that we, we are going to be on fire and we're going to lose everything uh, because there is some competitor on television all of a sudden. But I think that's a big strength that you have, right? Also in these kind of right roller coaster moments that you always become very calm, Look yeah. at the facts, look at the data, right? And then this is... Sometimes you have to be calm and steady and sometimes you have to be paranoid uh, yeah, to indeed. survive in the business. Yeah. yeah. No, I really admire that of Thijs. Like, I, I always taking action right away and that that's something I, I definitely sometimes lack. And, and then you tell me, like, do it, come on. And then action happens, so... Let's double back to the exit. Was it Vinted that asked you if you were willing to be acquired or did you reach out to them? No comments. <laughs> I, I think a funny, it's, it, it all started at that time, if I recall right, Thijs, that uh, Thijs bullied Vinted on, I think, one international website. It is now. so funny. I literally yeah. yesterday, uh, <laughs> Thomas uh, Plantera, the, the CEO of Vinted, he was in uh, Utrecht yesterday. We had some uh, beers and uh, drinks with some team members and with uh, the, another company. They, they just acquired uh, Bloom uh, in, uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, he was like, Thijs, oh man, you got me like completely crazy. And you guys were so small, but I, we hated you so much. <laughs> we just wanted you to <laughs> shut down and shut up. And yeah, it was so funny. And like it, I had this meeting with their CFO, this, like this super intelligent financial guy, <laughs> Vaudas. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there and I was like saying, Vaudas, we're going to crush you. And they just raised like millions. <laughs> and we only had like literally a couple hundred K on the bank account. And I was like, Vaudas, we're going to crush you. And Thomas told me like he walked out of this meeting and said, I had the, the strangest meeting I had in my whole life. This Dutch guy completely crazy talking about napoleon <laughs> talking about <laughs> crushing us but you mentioned that also in the press right you mentioned also that yeah. Finted is a loser yeah. we will win the battle etc yeah. i recall yeah <laughs> i thought like ah, those are like the old players and we the new players in the the media of course totally like that story it's yeah, completely, of course, not true at that point. Yeah. We were just like bragging about it and uh, creating this whole bubble around us and get free publicity. Indeed, but that was indeed your approach, right? So the, your way to get the attention of Vinted and yeah. in this case also of Fidas and Thomas, bro. <laughs> 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 and the energy. <laughs> what was your approach, Jules, at that time? Especially to get into contact with Vinted. Uh, well, we, we were running a, a quite professional process, I think, together with uh, Drake Star. Drakesar is an investment banker, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So, so they helped us uh, with, with both trajectories. So, 
You mean with the first uh, trajectory and the second, or do you mean the different trajectories funding? Yeah, like, like like both funding yeah, and so, um, so Drakestar is like a broker for companies for mm. the young people that are listening that don't know what an <laughs> investment banker is. I didn't know what it was. So basically, if you want to sell a company, just like a broker, they can do it for yeah, you. Yeah, it's like a realtor yeah. for companies. Exactly. Yeah, when I got really convinced about Vinted is really when we went there, met their team, uh, saw their Vilnius office, saw their vibes, and really concluded that it's really the same as, as United Workshop. So young people, very ambitious, trying to make an impact, trying to do well for the world. It's not just about money, it's about making a change to, to a big industry. Yeah, so it, it felt very naturally at that moment that this would be a very good party to exit with because it would mean that that we would join something that we would feel at home at because we we also visited different companies and i and i can't uh, give names but i didn't nearly have that feeling there yeah because at that time also thanks to i think the drake star as a partner but also your connections right we had different parties we engaged with right uh, Johan always says uh, one buyer is no buyer yeah that's my uh, little bit that's my line. That's, your yeah. line that's my line <laughs> looking backwards do you agree with that guys yeah, for sure. I, I I've seen like for the first time when we when we were actually selling what the process looks like from the other side. So also when you're raising, what the process looks like from the other side. Because yeah. all of a sudden I could see in Jon's head and I could see in Stefan Barry's head and how <laughs> they were like and how positioning lucky us. We were we were so lucky that we were doing good at the time of selling. And there are a lot of companies that have to sell because things are not working out. Indeed. And the founder is leaving or uh, a big player really takes over the market or they're just done with it or somebody dies. If, if you look at the whole spectrum, like only uh, around the 20 to 30% of the companies uh, that get sold uh, are really doing well. Like the majority of companies that are getting bought and sold, like something is wrong underneath uh, the hood and somebody died or some founder is leaving. And yeah, we were also super lucky that, that Vinted did this big round and did this whole wave of secondhand fashion came rushing over us. And I think it actually helped, Thijs, that you bullied Vinted. <laughs> really? No, because I, I, th I think that really helped, of course, because you, you, you really pushed them, right, to do something. And they knew us and they knew, I think, all of us, right? And I think that really helped. Who did the negotiations? Was it you, Shu? Yeah, on behalf of us as the founders, I, I did it. Uh, Stefan uh, did it on behalf of the financial uh, shareholders. And then uh, there was uh, Drake Star in between to uh, to make sure that actually we are also on, uh, aligned on uh, on what we want and who we want to work with and who we want to sell to. Because it's always a sensitive topic, right? Because the financial investors, most part of the team yeah. went with Vinted. And of course, they were really eager to work with them. And that's not, yeah. of course, fully aligned with the financial investors. So no. that's the moment when you hire an investment banker to fully align that. Yeah. I think that's one. And the second reason is, of course, to hire, to get the multiple biddings on the table, right? And to you wouldn't want any shares, right? Because you wouldn't want any shares in a company that you can't have yeah, any Yeah, we were open. But of course, we were looking for as a VC for a return, right? Yeah, and exactly. of course, the short-term return would be indeed money. Yeah. But on the other hand, we were also open to, at that time, vintage shares. But yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah that's uh, too bad, uh, right, Johan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can buy your shares, you want? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Not for sale. Not, anymore. <laughs> not for sale, man. And the process, you mentioned Drakestar, you mentioned indeed uh, you uh, negotiating with the Vinted team and then indeed Stefan from our end to do it on behalf of the financial... How, how did that process went from your perspective? Yeah, Stefan Barry is just like... M&A legends. He can, just like I'm a hustler type, uh, Stefan Bauer is really the type that 
can get a company sold and knows everything about that market and he already had like five years experience in it so we, we of course learned uh, a lot from him and we were these young guys we, we wanted to uh, gain financial independence when we when we started it and if, if you would ask me at that moment hey uh, fast forward uh, would you take this deal as it is or would you be happy with how everything went i would say yes but while you're in such process you have so many moments of frustrations as well because Things aren't going as, as you wanted. Um, uh, your your interests as a as a founder with your investors, even when you exit, aren't necessarily aligned. Um, one deal might have a bigger uh, earnout, uh, for example, versus another, or a different one, or you get more ESOP with one party versus another, which is directly for founders. Um, so investors don't profit from that, so they might prefer a different deal where there is a bigger uh, cash part up front. So yeah, I think one of the eye openers for me w- w- was that. That that is not always aligned. That at such moment uh, you need to stand up for yourself and and, and really um, just guard your yep. own interest. But nonetheless, I'm very happy with how everything went um, mm. and uh, and the in the exit. And I, I think we would never have had such exit if uh, P Capital was not on board because we were just lacking that part of professionalism in that part in, yep. in that part of running a business we were good at building products that was good at hustling that was great at building mm-hmm. uh, technology still is and and um yeah i think we, we created something really cool and really really valuable but we didn't know the value of what we no. built and we needed some some party to actually say okay well look this is what it's worth i know it doesn't make sense because it's it might be um the amount that's going through your system on a yearly basis, mm-hmm. or it's a multiple on your revenue of, of let's say, 10, which to me, like uh, I use my farmer's knowledge, doesn't make any sense that uh, mm-hmm. you pay 10x revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where really peak capital really helps. Um, and that's how, how we got this outcome at the end. And uh, yeah, it was very valuable. Now, founders who sell a company usually buy something for themselves to <laughs> celebrate yeah. a good exit. <laughs> what did you buy? The first thing I bought was earpods. Yeah. Apple earpods. Apple earpods. <laughs> this was my first present to myself. I really wanted it, but I thought they were too expensive. And then I had some more budget. And I bought the earpods. I'm still using them. Super happy with it. And then I bought a house. It was really the thing in my life. I really wanted to buy a house. I already made nine bits and went to 30 houses in Utrecht. And it's just yeah. a super <laughs> terrible market. It is. And um, yeah, then I bought a house. And yeah, I had a Ford Mondeo, it was almost uh, fell apart. So I bought a newer car. It's just, it's a 10-year-old BMW, uh, but it's it's like a super improvement. It has air conditioning and Bluetooth. Those were the things <laughs> that I wanted. And uh, of course, you, you, you think, okay, now I have this budget. I can buy all these super sick things, but eventually they're not going to make you any more happy. At least if I look around me, I'm not seeing people get more happy about expensive cars or super sick houses. It's I read some research on it. It tends to last for three weeks, the happy <laughs> feeling, and then things will be back to normal. Man, yeah, we I need think, a new um, dose of this. Even with a bit, big budget, I still yeah, I have this hustler mentality of every euro I spend, I don't want to do stupid things. I really want to like be in this position for the rest of my life and for the rest of my children's life and invest smartly and do smart things and not uh, just be this guy who goes to a club and spend 3k it's like no it's like 
completely not my thing. <laughs> so I guess Jan was paying for drinks tonight. You probably did that once also, Thijs, knowing you a little bit. I took all my friends to France. Uh, okay, yeah. We went to a holiday house uh, because like, this, this, I told my friends, if I sell United's Water Hope, then I take you all on this holiday uh, to Indonesia. And we're going, huh? And then uh, it was COVID. So we picked France. We had a sea cliff house there. Uh, we had an amazing time. She was there. It was just last week. Four days of partying and celebrating with my friends. Yeah, we had amazing food. We watched football. Uh, we swam in the pool and had a good time with people. And um, yeah. What did you buy, Shul? Yeah, very stereotypical apparently, but I also bought a car. <laughs> <laughs> His first car. My first car. I a didn't... Volkswagen Polo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I it's... was there. Shul took me to I don't know uh, what I have to buy. And I was like, okay, Shul, what's your budget? He said, okay, this is my budget. Ah, we're going to buy a Volkswagen Polo. It's a small car because you live in the city. You can park it. It's a Volkswagen. It's a good one. And then we went to this uh, auto shop in the build. <laughs> and uh, he was like, okay, Thijs, uh, you drive it. And I drove it. And like, uh, how's the stereo? It's fine. Okay, we're going to buy it. Okay, nice. A bit negotiation. And we, we got like, I think a K off uh, the price. And we, yeah, we saved like a thousand euros and we had a new car. <laughs> and also a house, uh, yeah. apparently. And, and I'm also taking uh, some of my friends on a holiday in December, going to the Caribbean to uh, sail around on a catamaran for two oh, weeks. Cool. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, that, those things, like, uh, I think those are like the basic things that you that you want if you have a little bit more budget or a, a way to transport yourself really easily, uh, a, a nice place to live uh, and good times uh, with uh, friends and family. So, yeah. Cool. Now, because Johan was an investor in the company, we will derive from our format and I myself will do an estimation about the exit of United Wardrobe. So, hold on tight. Let's set the stage. This is what we found online. United Wardrobe was founded in 2014 and a team of about 40 employees and about 4 million active users on the platform at the date of acquisition. Interestingly enough, very recently in uh, January of 2021, Depop, a US competitor of United Wardrobe, got acquired by Etsy, a global marketplace for handcrafted and vintage goods. Etsy is a listed company worth almost $25 billion today and the acquisition value of Depop is published to be 1.6 billion with 26 million active users in 150 countries. Another interesting development in the same space is the IPO of the US-based Poshmark, a second-hand marketplace for fashion and accessories. The value of Poshmark today is estimated to be 3.3 billion with 60 million monthly active users in the US, UK, Australia alone. With these numbers, we can calculate the value per active user, which can function as a benchmark. For Depop, this would be 1.6 billion valuation divided by 26 million active users, leading to 62 euro value per active user. For Poshmark, on the other hand, it's 3.3 billion valuation divided by 60 million monthly active users, leading to 55 euros value per active user. We can only use these numbers with a discount, so we're talking about a huge difference in scale. Not only in the numbers of active users, but also in the geographical reach. Besides, both of these businesses have their headquarters in the US, and as we all know, valuations in the US are a lot higher than in Europe. Therefore, we take a 50% discount on the average value per user, leading to a valuation per active user of about 30 euros. 
for the sharp listener here, for Depop and Poshmark, we talk about monthly active users. For United Wardrobe, we only have the number of active accounts. As we don't have numbers, let's make the assumption here, one-third of the active users are monthly active. This would mean 1.3 monthly active users for United Wardrobe. Now, if we multiply the 1.3 million monthly active users with a 30 euro value per active user, we get to a valuation of roughly 40 million euros. Thijs, Schul, am I correct? Too high or too low yeah, no for comment. this assumption? Yeah, we, we cannot say anything about valuation. Um, of course, I'm the type that likes to scream everything uh, from the roofs. <laughs> and I would love to do it, but uh, we just can't. <laughs> no. I agree. Details. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. Johan? <laughs> and of course, you can say, oh, Thijs, just tell it. But it's just not strategical for Vinted. Yeah, we are together now all in Vinted. And we come, want to be the biggest player selling fashion uh, in the world. And we're still so small. And there's so many opportunities that having a risk of publishing these numbers is just like, yeah, it's not worthwhile. And it's, it's, it's just like not strategical because there are so much competitors, there's so much going on in this market. And this data is just... Um, They're so rational. Who are we talking to? <laughs> a lot of people had to <laughs> stamp it into my mind. Uh, but, uh, yeah. This was also part of the script. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. If you did, please subscribe to our show at Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. If you have feedback, please send a message to podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan Vermeel. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us at the next episode.